Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Hey, Laurel. Hey, Jessa. Who's our guest today? We have Tristan Higgins of Metaclusive. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Nessa, how do we how do we get in touch with Tristan? <laughs> we actually have kind of a funny way that we met Tristan, and what I didn't realize, like I had heard Tristan, I'd heard your name multiple times, but I wasn't connecting the dots that it was the same Tristan. And so, I think Laurel and I mentioned about four on here that we are um, we recently joined Hera Hub. It's a co working community based in San Diego, but there there's locations all over the country now. And all over the world. Huh? All over the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The world. I saw that global the other day. Um, And so, one thing, a plug for Hair Hub, one thing I love is they have these virtual co working hours and accountability calls and for entrepreneurs, and especially while a lot of us are working from home, it's so helpful. And so, I was on one call, and then that's where I first met Tristan, at least formally. And as we're talking through it, we're on the call for about an hour. And I was like, oh, you should look into this and that. And I'm like, wait, you're like all these people I wanted to introduce her to. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're Tristan. And then I realized I'd been on another call where you were um, discussed about speaking at the Tory Project. We've, we've talked a lot about in this podcast and interviewed Dave. He's our first podcast guest. And that you're speaking the new Tory Project cohort. And I was laughing because I was literally on the same call for Tory Project where people are having the same conversation, talking around like, oh, you need to talk to Tristan. And then someone's like, yeah, Tristan's speaking at Tory Project. Like, we're like, we're, we are. So anyway, <laughs> long, long-winded way. Tristan's out there. Uh, we have or know through, through Tory Project now and through uh, Hera Hub. And um, yeah, I'm just really happy to have you on the podcast. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that either means that uh, I'm be, uh, starting to be successful and different people are knowing me, or that my world is way too small. <laughs> I need it's to expand. Our world, I like to think our world's big. So, uh, yeah, I do talk to the same three people every day, pretty much. <laughs> well, we all do, right? Yeah. So, so oh. yeah. So, when I had first met you, you were discussing Metaclusive, your business. Uh, I believe you recently launched. So, can you give us? I guess an overview, like what, what is Metaclusive? Absolutely. I would be delighted to. And can I just say thank you both for having me here? I'm, I'm really excited. Okay. Uh, Metaclusive. So Metaclusive, uh, if you don't know what that word means, don't panic. Um, it doesn't mean that your education was faulty. Uh, I made it up. And the reason I made it up is because I was interested in the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion plus belonging. And you know, this is not unique to me. Many of the best DE&I people in the business right now are really focused on belonging. But when I wanted to come up with a business name, I thought I need something that captures what I want to focus on. And as a, I'm a superhero fanatic, that's the first thing to know about me, Star Wars, superheroes, Avengers. I use them in all of my presentations and I love the analogies of superheroes. So metahuman, right? This concept that you're you're more than human, you're extra, you know, this, this wonderfulness of being more than you're expected to be and inclusive, right? The word inclusive. And so, and I'm married to a scientist who is interested in DNA, eDNA, environmental DNA. Anyway, probably shouldn't go off on that tangent, but one of the things they talk about is metadata. 
And so it, it seemed to me that that word meta really had a lot of positive connotations. So I squished together meta and inclusive and came up with the word metaclusive. And the probably the coolest thing about that is if you Google that word, it's just me. I don't have to pay Google, no AdWords yet. I mean, maybe at some point I will, but for, for, for now, um, I've been able to create that that concept. And the concept really is just, just belonging. And my focus in Metaclusive is to help corporations. My, my sort of sweet spot is larger corporations, but also organizations, nonprofits, universities, educational institutions, to create an environment in their workplace where everyone feels like they belong. And that is really, I think it's kind of my superpower. A friend of mine from high school said this recently. She said, I think belonging is your superpower. And I just fainted. I love that. And I, you know, I've had so many times in my life where I haven't felt like I belonged. And I think everybody has, right? We can all appreciate that experience. And so when we talk about belonging rather than diversity, I think it captures everyone under, under a broader net because every single person listening to this right now and every single person that will understands what it's like to feel excluded. And so when I talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, I really focus on how do we make our people feel like they belong? Everything. That's wonderful. And so I know a little bit of your background already. And I can you describe like your background and what like how your career, like how your path led you to this and like how you discovered your superpower? Sure. Well, my background, there's a Murphy bed and um, some pillows. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, I so, got it. I, you got it. So you're in the show. What's that? So we get dinner and a show. show. Well, I do have a theater background, right? That's what that's my shortcut. I have a degree in directing. I wanted to be a theater director, particularly in musicals. Then I decided that I wanted to make money instead of being out of work every six months or even sooner. And I decided to go into law school. And it's a much longer story, but basically I started as a theater kid. I went to law school to become an entertainment lawyer. I did entertainment law for at least a decade hardcore before I went to uh, high tech. So I was at Screen Actors Guild in LA. Then I went to Sega, the video game company. And I did all that sort of corporate in-house video game, voiceovers, actors, music licensing, all the things that you can think of involved in a either making a movie or making a video game. And I was lucky enough for Sony to be looking for somebody who had experience in technology and entertainment. And because of the Screen Actors Guild and the video game company, I had both. So I was able to come back home to San Diego and do corporate high-tech law. So I started with entertainment law for them. And then I moved into the space of the really, like really nerdy, geeky stuff, which I didn't even know anything about, but learned about artificial intelligence and drones and robotics and just this amazing stuff. I got to go to the uh, image sensor plant in Japan, you know, where they put you in the suit with the booties and they blow everything off. And it was fantastic. So I did that for the last decade. And then I decided I'm ready to do something a little different. And what I decided to do after talking with, I I had a period where I was out of work for a little while uh, for uh, medical reasons. And so I was talking with a coach and she said, well, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted? And I said, wow, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. You know, what a great question. And having been employed, luckily, most of my, all my adult life, I'd never had time to stop and think about what do I want to be when I grow up? And I said, I want to be a professional speaker. And she said, well, why don't you do that? 
Uh, I mean, that's why she <laughs> makes the big bucks, right? Obviously, like, it's so wonderful. And so I decided, well, my passion is about diversity and inclusion. I have been focused on this since I was a little, little kid. My mother will tell you that in fourth grade, I freaked out because the teacher was going to exclude our class from a big assembly. Like, I just, ever since I've been little, I wanted to create justice. I wanted to create fairness, even though I know the world's not fair, but I wanted to create whatever fairness I could. And ever since my professional career, I've been focused on, you know, being a big old lesbian and dealing with what that means in the workplace and trying to make room for people behind me, basically. And so people who are less obviously gay or less obviously diverse. And that started really, gosh, I mean, like 30 years ago, I was marching and protesting and, you know, I was part of the movement to get the fire department and the police in the pride parade from the beginning, right, which is now quite controversial. But I've been a sort of OG diversity person, right, since I was about 19. And the idea that I could get paid to do that is sort of staggering to me. And so that's that's really the path is I decided I wanted to be my own boss, which I've never done before, and get paid to help companies and organizations do better. And I think that part of my superpower, or the belonging bit, is being able to disarm people, being able to help people laugh about what we're talking about, being able to use myself as an example, right? I'm very aware of my own flaws. And if I'm not, my wife will remind me, right? Like in my kids, right? We keep, keep me honest. And so when I stand up and talk to a room full of largely white people, as is frequently the case in these corporate settings, I can talk about all my flaws, all my foibles, all the times I've said the wrong thing, all the times that I have been afraid of getting it wrong and actually gotten it wrong and yet live to tell the tale. So I feel like that's part of what makes me good at this work, right? It's, it's obviously I'm not um, anything other than white, right? I am white. I'm very white. However, I have lots of other kinds of diversity. I've been excluded many times in my life and I can really, not in the same way that I would if I was, uh, for example, a black trans woman, but I have been excluded and I understand what that means. I really am rambling. I'm sorry. Oh, it's good. Too much rambling. That's why you're here. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and this is a rambling cast? Yeah, rambling. Yes, just go for yeah. it. Turn on the mics and set now you free. Now time. The time is now. Sing my song. It's a rambling. Led Zeppelin. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm not a huge Led Zeppelin fan, although I do enjoy a little Stairway to Heaven. I know it's super trite. Yeah, no judgment here. This is a no judgment podcast, Tristan. You feel how you want to feel. I, I want to comment that your superpower of disarming people, I was nodding profusely for those of our listeners who can't see because I discovered that that is my father's superpower. It just mm -hmm. like dawned on me the other day. It, it is this, it's a beautiful gift you have to give to the universe where you can create a space where people can just tell you all the things and stuff and not feel like they got to be defensive um, or they got to be perfect. Mm. Um, because in, in my opinion, this is, these are difficult conversations and it's really super easy to become defensive and scared and frightened because you just don't, for lack of better words, you don't want to be a D like you don't want to be mean to anyone. You don't want to mess up, but you want to learn mm -hmm. and like do better. So thank you for sharing that that superpower with the world. Oh, you're welcome. I think that the ability to have these kinds of conversations is incredibly important. 
and well, these kinds of conversations, this is a fun conversation. I guess I mean things like we're talking about racism and we're talking about sexism. We're talking about um, excluding people and genders and different religions in the workplace. We get really uncomfortable and it's important that we get uncomfortable. It's important that I won't make any assumptions about the two of you, but it's very important that white people are comfortable, get comfortable being uncomfortable because whether we like it or not, we are part of the system that is a problem and has been a problem. And we have also, the positive is we have some power to change it. So yes, we need to make people feel better about being uncomfortable. And sometimes jokes do that and superheroes and, you know, little pow cartoons, which I use in my presentations. But I think too, what you're doing is so important because it's, I think, well, I shouldn't say this, up until recently, my perspective is that you kind of, you don't really talk about it. Like talking about it is rude or it's like kind of saying, oh, you don't talk religion and politics. And I think that's part of the problem of how we got to where we're at today, where there's like this huge divide. And even to this day, I had friends very recently I was fired up about something and I spoke up and it probably wasn't the most constructive thing to say, but at the same time I used humor and I just was like, I, I'm not going to be silent anymore. Like I know I'm not going to change this person's mind, but me sitting back and not saying anything and acting like this behavior is acceptable. Like I can't accept that. I can't sit with that. And I remember one of my friends was saying, well, I mean, that's why we don't talk politics and religion. I'm like that's the problem is that you sit back and you don't say what you stand for and you don't speak up for other people who don't necessarily have that platform to find their voice. So anyway. I That's really important because we're going, into we're going into Thanksgiving, right? Where we're going to be with family and, and maybe we're doing Friendsgiving. I mean, maybe we're not gathering with as, as many people as we normally would. But usually, yeah, we shouldn't. The, but family holidays in general like the rule has has usually been um, where I was raised in Oklahoma is like you don't don't stir the pot by talking about religion and politics at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts on that, Tristan? What are some advice that you can give people as they head into Thanksgiving and potentially sensitive conversations? <laughs> well, I think that um, I mean, first of all, for some people, maybe you just should avoid it, right? Like if you can't approach a, a discussion with civility and you can't respect the person that you're talking to, whether it's your kid, your neighbor, your boss, or your you know parents, you, you should avoid those kinds of things, sure. But if you can listen, it's fantastic. I mean, if you have the opportunity to sit with someone, whether it's on Zoom or live, and ask them, why are you upset about what's happening right now in America? And be ready to just listen to them. There's a lot of power in that. Now, like you said, Jesse, you're not going to change anybody's mind. And that's not the purpose of discourse, right? That's not the reason that we should be having these discussions. The reason we should be having these discussions is because I think one of the most basic things people need is to feel heard. And so if the people on the one side of an issue can feel heard by that one person they're talking to, not societally, just that one person on the other side, I think there's a lot of power in that. In other words, you know, I, I'm a feminist. I am in I am pro-choice in all aspects. I am pro-woman. I'm pro all of these things that you can think of. But I can sit and listen to someone and talk to someone who is pro-life and who feels very strongly differently than me and not feel like my core is being dissolved, right? It is okay for people to disagree about these incredibly important things. 
And I have some examples in my own family. So I have two dads um, and a couple of moms, right? I got, I got the full set. And, you know, one of my, one of them, one of the sets is incredibly liberal and incredibly kind of lines up with me. And the other set does not line up with me on some of these politics. But we have been able to talk in a way that I think is really special and important about the election and about gun control and about, you know, the, the, the kinds of taxes, right? I mean, I think part of what's happened recently is that we have become, and we I say we, I mean everyone. This is not like, oh, those right-wing people. This is everyone. We have become unable to separate our political beliefs from our values as a person. And I, I, I would love to be able to remind people that, you know, not that long ago, the Republican Party was very anti-tax and the Democratic Party was very pro-tax because it's how you pay for things. Like, that's a fact. Those are just political positions and neither of them is inherently evil. Right? So, I mean, when we get to this place where we say, um, you know, you're, you're the devil because you voted against me. First of all, nobody votes against someone else. They vote in their own best interest, right? So I guess I'm rambling again, but I think I think that it, the number one thing when you're talking with somebody about religion, and religion is one that's gotten me in trouble, and even just recently, uh, so I, I very much own that, is you, you need to be respectful. You need to understand that that person's beliefs don't invalidate yours. And I think that is the most important thing. And if you you know can say pass the turkey, um, I, I very much appreciate that you disagree with me, then then go for it, have those conversations. But remember, like Jessa said, you're not having it to change someone's mind because that is a mistake. That is truly impactful. Thank you for providing that advice. It really resonates me when you say it's very powerful to listen. When I've learned, I've, when I've learned to hold space for someone and listen and not um, take it as a personal attack or be offended, I feel powerful in the most loving, mm -hmm. compassionate, like expansive way because I disagree with what they're saying, but I, I truly empathize with the feelings and the thoughts that are behind it. It's I am coming from a place of love and light and the way that I get there is very different from you, yet mm -hmm. we're both coming from a place of love and light so we can hold space for each other and listen in that way. Yes. In, and I encourage people when you get to a place where you do that, like give it a go, try it out, <laughs> see how it feels. Cause it's going to feel, I think it's going to feel really good. It's worth the risk. Right. Listening try something, to try something less uh, personal, like climate, like talk about climate first. Oh, that was what I was going to mention. You can, like move to things like, you know, choice and guns and things like that. I mean, start. <laughs> well, it depends on the family. Like climate for my family can be, can be a little hairy. But for, for example, um, you were mentioning how taxes were originally, it's a way to pay for things. And so yeah. it was, you know, Democratic at the, uh, Democrat Party at the time. The majority of the environmental laws in the United States and in California were all signed by Republicans. CEQA, NEPA, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all of them in the 70s, Republican. And, and I tend to use, because I'm an environmental specialist and an environmental should have paid attention to that before I made that comment. Sorry. Oh, all, all good. All good. I'm a tree hugger till the cows come home. And, and usually I found that if I start off with that little nugget, that little gem, like we all want clean air and clean water. Like we don't want children to suffer and die by drinking lead. Like that's just not, we can all agree that people go, Oh, that's why environmental laws were in place. 
-hmm. It's not to prevent development or to prevent the human beings from thriving in their best. It's so that when you take care of the environment, it keeps you clean and well, and you can live longer Mm -hmm. and, and have babies. If you want to have babies like that, like (laughs) the end of the day. Um, yeah. So thank, thank you for sharing, sharing that tool as we go into gobble, gobble day, like gobble up other, what other people have to say, just listen. Well, and, and if I, if I may, as you go into your Thanksgiving break, whatever, however it is you celebrate, please don't forget that it's a very controversial holiday and it's very painful for many people that you may know or people they know because of First Nations and Indigenous people. And so when we, when you talk about it, we don't talk about, you know, we're not celebrating the pilgrims, right? We're celebrating family and friends and trying to remember that we are on borrowed land, right? At least I am. So. Yeah, that's a really great reminder. And it's interesting that you say it because that's how I feel, but I don't talk about it. So I think I need to acknowledge that like mm-hmm. during the celebration more like, okay, we're here to celebrate family and, you know, be grateful for the things we have and not, this is not, we've moved past the uh, the pilgrim days, but. Uh, well, you may it, have, but uh, you know. Well, I mean, oh yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. as in like my gatherings, Sure. Like I feel like that, but we, to say that out loud, like at the yeah. gatherings and the intent behind it. And one of, the, one of the things you could do is as you start your celebration, you could say, I want to honor that we are on Kumeyaay Indian land, which is, mm-hmm. that's where, that's where I am. Right. And um, that's a very powerful, uh, I probably should say Kumeyaay tribe rather than Indian. I apologize. But that's a very powerful way to start any discussion. And I've been in a lot of meetings recently where that's the first thing that people say and I'm learning, right? Like that's, you know, mm-hmm. we we have a lot, long way to go when it comes to t- treating our First Nations and Indigenous people with respect. I don't think, however, that means you can't celebrate Thanksgiving, right? I'm an atheist. I still celebrate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it has a different connotation. You, you know, right. I don't have to believe in the, you know, the thinning of the veils and um, All Saints Day in order to celebrate Halloween with candy, right? Like there are ways to celebrate without buying into all of the dogma is the wrong word, but the, the factual basis behind it, right. Or the, the stated basis behind it. Well, that's, that's important to, I'm, I'm originally from uh, Oklahoma, which has the most uh, native peoples in America and San Diego County has the most bands of, of native Americans in the country. I, I believe we've got like 29 or something bands. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, I know that because I'm in the environmental world. And when you do land development in California, you have to comply with Assembly Bill 52, which is you consult with the tribes on their tribal cultural resources before you move ground. And they're on site in case uh, remains are discovered or artifacts are discovered and they have the first right to do what they feel best to do. And and I was not raised in my education system in, in Oklahoma to know that. And my Thanksgiving was celebrated with each child dressing up as a pilgrim or a Native American. And we called them Indians. And it was, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh gosh, I hope my nieces and nephews are not repeating the same thing that I did. But the, the point of me explaining this is as we grow and we learn these fun facts about our native history. I mean, I'm just, I'm waking, I'm watching the world wake up and I'm waking up myself. And again, thank you, Tristan, for, for helping us uh, put words 
to the things like just a feels on the inside that we don't really know how to get out. Mm. Oh, that's that's a fantastic reminder. I mean, I, I didn't realize we had 39 tribes. That That's amazing. I think it's 29 or 30, but I'm going to Google. Oh, 29. Sorry. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, this this will be one of the things that people are paying much more attention to, right, as we move forward. The only group um, who make less money than our Black Americans are our First Nations, right? Indigenous people, um, two and a half times more likely to commit suicide as a teenager than the, the rest of the country. I mean, the, the our Native Americans need our help. They need our attention, and um, they do not need us to name sports, you know, teams after them and to continue to fight to keep such horrible racial slurs. I mean, can you imagine if the uh, a sports team had people in blackface as their logo? I mean, it's just, it would, it's inconceivable, right? We would never, ever stand for that in this day and age, even in the last several decades. And yet we have teams with, you know, red face and, and things like that. And, and people are shocked that we want to make the change. Plus, well, I have to have an opportunity, right? Think about how much stuff they could sell if they made a change. I have to have a disclaimer that I'm a Chiefs fan, a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And I've been called out recently by surprising, in a good way, I've people who surprise me by calling out the Chiefs and the tomahawk chop and you know it's like as a fan and i'm not a rabbit fan by any means but it's like you have this like sentimental value and then when you it's not conscious though when you right, really right. think about it, what's behind it it's like oh you know what this this is extremely insensitive and demeaning and is not celebrated in the way it's intended to be celebrated which is just to cheer on your football team and so i'm fully on board with uh progression when it comes to sports teams, it's, I think there's some worse ones, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going that direction. And as we're talking about this, you know, we're talking about, I, I love this conversation and I'm so, so grateful that this is like the timing of this. Cause I honestly coming into this, I wasn't even thinking about it until we started getting in this conversation. So this is really helpful um, to think about prior to celebrating um, Thanksgiving in whatever way that looks like for people is to have this at the forefront of your minds. And I love that for, especially like in San Diego and whatever, like look up what what band of um, like Native Americans, like of land you're on, what tribe or band, and like say that out loud. Like that could, is such an amazing way to add to the holiday and to the tradition and to change the perspective. So I'm definitely gonna take that away with me today. Maybe that's a key takeaway. Excellent. And, well, and, you know, it might be possible that some of you people who are watching don't understand why the Kansas City Chiefs is offensive. Can we take just a quick second and just? Yes, please. Right. So so Chief is an incredibly honorable title uh, with First Nations people. And, uh, you know, there's only one chief in a tribe, right? They're not, you know, it's not a group of chiefs. And so the concept that not only is it a, um, a Native American concept that they, we've taken, but it's also like the most honorable person in the group. They are selected by the tribe. It's very, very um, important. And so if you call somebody chief, for example, it's very offensive uh, to First Nations people. And so, and the reason I'm using all three indigenous First Nations and Native American is it's really any of those three are considered appropriate. If you have a friend who identifies um, with a tribe, ask them how they would like to be referred to. But since we don't have that just now, I'll try to use all three. But it's just something to look into, right? It, you know, did they mean to be offensive when they named the Kansas City Chiefs that? No, of course not, right? Of course not. 
you know, that's not, that's not where it comes from. And I think that's important to remember. You can love that team and still be interested in possibly making it less problematic for other people. Right. Yeah. I feel like as you're saying this, I'm, I'm like trying to come up with a comparison. I feel like, you know, I grew up Catholic and so it's like popes. That's something it'd be like naming the team, the popes or something. That's like kind of like a parallel that I feel like is more in my world, a little bit more relatable, maybe for lack of a better well, like, are the saints offensive to the yeah. Catholic Church? I mean, I don't know, right? Like, that's, you know, and this is where you get into that place where people say, and I can hear it, why you got to police everything? And, and you know, I've got a 13-year-old son who is, you know, I'm the mom, but he's gorgeous and he's tall and he's skinny and he's, you know, brilliant. And he's all of the things, right? All the privileged things. And so occasionally we'll be having a discussion and I'll mention something. Like, actually, my daughter said, oh, mom, you can't say savage. Well, that's actually not necessarily true. It's quite controversial, this particular topic. But my son said, you're telling me I can't say savage? And I said, no, honey, I'm not telling you you can't say it. I'm saying you should be aware that if you say it, you may offend someone. And if you're going to offend someone, my rule is it should be on purpose, not accidentally. Right? So, so that's the discussion we have. And when you talk about language policing, it's just about being aware that the way you say things, you may not have any idea are hitting people in a very negative way. And if you're trying to get business done or you're trying to get something from someone, whatever that may be, you probably want to know about those things. It's not about policing your language. It's about being aware. I, yes, that is, I think that is such like another great takeaway is just being aware. And be, and I think too, especially as kids and especially when I grew up, I like a really, now it's like, it's an embarrassing story to tell, like, but at the time I just didn't know. And so I was not, definitely not aware, was not conscious, not anywhere close to woke. And I remember vividly, you know, when I was in high school, everyone would say gay, like, that's so gay, that's so gay. Mm-hmm. And they still do. Friend, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, as then, I guess now, like, the people I'm around don't say that. They could, like, that's not a thing anymore. But then, and we weren't aware of what we were saying. Like we weren't consciously saying it. It was just a word we said when, you know, we were making fun of something that was bad. Like I know that. And at the time, again, I wasn't conscious. I should have another funny story about this, but my, my friend, I remember one of my friends came out to me in high school and, um, you know, totally accepting, not a big, well, to me, it wasn't a big deal. I like, you know, accepted him. I was not surprised. And, I'm like, okay. And then later we were having a conversation. I said, I was like, oh, it's okay. And as soon as I said it, I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I wasn't thinking about that and what it meant. And he was like, oh, that's okay. He was like, I say things that he's like, I say, that's so hetero. (laughs) He doesn't like something. But that was like my snap moment of like, oh, this means, this was like 20 years ago. And I was like, oh, this has meaning when I say it. And I have another... I have a funny story that that wasn't funny, but that was like my part of my awakening was like what I'm saying. But another one, I remember when I was a kid and again, kids throwing around words. And I remember vividly being at home and there was a a commercial on for uh, Ted Danson and Gulliver's Travel. And I actually love Ted Danson now, but it was like a mini series. Like, again, this was like probably, I was like 13. So probably like 25 years ago. And I remember walking out the door. I was like, oh, it's like Ted Danson's so queer. And my mom is like, and this is in Missouri, rural Missouri. My mom, thank goodness, she's like, Jessalyn. I was like, what? She's like, do you know what that word means? I was like, yeah, otter peculiar. And she was like, oh. <laughs> like, 
okay, carry on. (laughs) And so I didn't understand the like context that people used it in. I was like very literal. I was like, God, he's so weird. Like he's, he's queer. And my mom, uh, anyway, I just remember like going about my day. I don't know why it's that could be so much, but anyway. And it's, it's interesting because in the workplace and in businesses, um, it's really fun to bring your full self to work and um, be lighthearted and outgoing and fun. Or if you're an introvert, be introverted and like do your thing. And mm-hmm. part of having, I'm, I'm going to say what I think would be a way I would belong in a workplace is if I was celebrated for being outgoing and, and weird or queer, queer in the weird way. And, um, and I'm wondering what, how can I, as a very outgoing uh, white female business owner, um, do in the workplace to be more inclusive of people who are not like me, that don't look like me, don't talk like me, and aren't motivated by the same things that I'm motivated by? Because until about a year ago, I just assumed everybody liked the same things that I did and like re- reacted the same way that I react. and. How can That's I totally do normal. better? Totally normal. How can you get, just clarify for me a little bit more, Laurel? How can you, you how can you telegraph like acceptance of, of yeah, others? How can I foster belonging in my workplace as a, a business owner? This is a great question. And I think the first thing that you want to do is start to educate yourself, right? So um, the internet is an amazing thing and we have amazing resources available to us. So the very first thing to do if you are a white woman, for example, is to start to read about uh, black women, right? Black men, brown women, brown men, to start understanding that, um, start with some numbers, start with some facts, start with the fact that it takes 24 months for a Latinx woman to make the same amount of money as a white man, 24 months, like that's insane. Right. That, that's crazy. And we forget that when we talk about equal payday being in November, we're talking about white women. And so I think one of the things that's the most important about for white women is to remember that even though we are the minority in some ways, right, because we're not male, we have a tremendous amount of privilege in other ways. And I, I when I talk about this, so I identify as being I am a white woman. I'm a cisgender woman. So I, you know, I'm, I'm in this is me as a woman. And yet I'm very diverse. I'm an atheist, so that puts me opposed to what, like 80% of the country. I am disabled, which is actually not as unique as it sounds since one in five Americans have a disability. I am over 40, proudly, uh, but that's still technically, you know, difference. And I'm a big lesbian, right? So I'm very diverse. However, my whiteness precedes all of the rest of that everywhere I go in the world everywhere. And, you know, I'm not a trust fund kid, yet I have lots of privilege. I have a family that has been able to take care of me every time I've had problems. Um, I've never had any issue. My parents had some issue with food, you know, many, many years ago, but I never have. I was expected to go to college, right? I mean, I can list off 40 or 50 different things that the three of us perhaps, I, I won't assume, but perhaps share by the nature of our skin, or at least the perceived what people perceive us to be, regardless of what we actually are. 
And so I think the most important thing as a white woman is to get in touch with that privilege. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have obstacles, right? It doesn't mean that you don't deal with a lot of other crap that's coming your way, that you're not getting catcalled and whistled and dealing with possibilities of rape, right? Like I'm not dismissing any of our experience as a woman. But when you ask me the particular question, I'm saying as a business owner, as a white woman business owner, the first thing I would suggest you do is get in touch with what kinds of privilege you do have, because that will help you understand the privilege that other people do not have. And the next thing would be to educate yourself, right, as to their experience. Um, if you have the ability to broaden your social network, that is fantastic. Um, I was recently in a training where someone asked me to write down my five closest friends. And I wrote down my five closest friends. And then I wrote down their basic religious, you know, belief, their race, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, and their age. And they were all the same. Right. They're not butch, but other, you know, they're not very masculine like I am. But other than that, they were all white women, cisgender white women um, with moderate beliefs about religion to, you know, to minor. Right? Not not, not like not. Um, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but not super practicing. Right. Like there, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scale of that secular versus atheist. Right. Versus religious. And I thought, wow, I really need to diversify because I think of myself as being incredibly diverse, but when it comes to my day in and day out, people I trust, people I talk to, people I text when something is going on, they're still mostly white. Um, so one of the things, and then and I'm not saying, oh, you put an ad in the paper, hey, I'm looking for black friends, right? Like the, you can't do that, right? You, well, you can, but it'd be bad for you. But when you come across people, when you, when you find people that you have a connection to, I'm encouraging you to now follow up on that in a way that you wouldn't have done maybe if you weren't asking this question. Right now, you know, it's important to know that it's not anybody else's job to educate you about their difference. However, there's no way to have a relationship with someone where you don't learn, right? If you are talking with someone, if you're listening to them, if you have an occasional, you know, um, if you have coffee with someone once a month who's different than you, you're going to learn a lot. So when it comes to your workplace and your environment, you can telegraph the most acceptance by becoming aware, because then you will stop saying things like, hey, let's have a powwow you know, of a meeting, or that's so gay, like you're just saying, Jessa, you become aware. And when you start to use language, like, for example, for straight white women, I love to encourage this, say partner instead of husband, say yeah. spouse. That's a, it's just a wonderful, it's not that it's not your husband. It's not that you don't identify as a husband and wife, which is wonderful. And nobody should take that away from you. But in that environment, if you say spouse or partner, you make room for other people to say, oh, well, maybe she would be open to me explaining that I have a same-sex relationship and I haven't told her, right? So when you have when you have somebody like me in the room, it's really obvious that you might want to be aware about sexual orientation difference. But if my wife was here, you wouldn't have any idea. So that's the thing that I think is so important, right? When you're creating a business is the person in front of you might be a, a straight presenting white woman. She might be married to a black man or her mother might be Latinx, right? Like you just don't know. And so if you start to make space for people around you, I think you really, that's really the first step as a business owner is, is to, is to, I mean, wonderful if you can have a diverse staff, right? And that's fantastic. But if you're like me, it's just me, I'm just the only one. So I'm either super diverse, depending on how you look at it, or not at all diverse, depending on how you look at it. But um, I think, does that help Laurel? Does that answer your question? Oh, so helpful because, um, one of the core values at Estellar Co. is curiosity um, because we're avid learners. And I'm very hyper aware 
of my privilege the moment I stepped into California uh, 15, 16 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, and ever since then, I've been very cautious and very aware. I do catch myself bragging about things that I didn't know I was bragging about. And then, like, for example, I'll, you know, take some cannabis or something, and it'll be right in front of my face. Like, Laurel, you've been bragging about something that is very privileged. Like, you, like, it'll smack me right in the face. So sometimes I need a little assistance from, you know, plant medicine or the earth to be like, snap out of it. But um, I'm, I'm really grateful to have Jessa as a business partner. We're both, for those of you who aren't watching this video, both white women the same age, we're both from middle America. So we're very, very, very similar. But when we established a seller co, we wanted to learn more about um, other folks in diversity. And mm -hmm. so we started our runway to regeneration initiative for, for other reasons. But then we had our first event was women owned businesses. Second event was black owned businesses. Third event was LGBTQ owned businesses. And our next one will be immigrant owned businesses. And just by searching for speakers, it highlighted how little, how many people we don't know. Mm. And to your point about like broaden your network and your social network, it was a difficult task to find the black owned businesses in the LGBTQ owned businesses. It was a difficult task. And that is what I'm grateful that Jessa and I and the runway to regeneration team did that because it was a great smack in the face. And now we have an excellent, we're growing a community of people that makes me feel so much better. Cause I'm like learning about, I mean, now I fill my Instagram with totally different stuff than I like completely different things than what it used to be filled with. Um, so it used to be like pretty latte pictures and now it's posts about human rights or now it's, it's mostly uh, women of color dancing on roller skates <laughs> and it brings me great joy. Oh, I love and, that. And like That's black owned businesses and um, Latinx uh, speakers and, and just, it's mostly women. I'll be honest. I'm, I don't want to say I'm discriminated against men, but I really am filling up my social media and my um, life with more women of color. And it just makes me smile. And well, if, can I jump on that? Can I jump on that? So you're not discriminating against men by promoting women. I think that's one of the things that I think is really powerful for us to remind ourselves. You know, when you take people that are the other, whatever that may be, because it's different in different settings, and you promote them, that's not discriminating against the the major or the the non-other, right? That's that's elevating voices. I mean, I I spend I'm I work a lot at elevating Black women's voices now because of my awakening just this last year, and that's not something you need to apologize for. I think that's fantastic. Men are doing okay, right? They're doing okay. As a, as a group, as a massive group, white men are doing okay. Don't have to promote them. You can, but you don't have to. <laughs> yes. And I, I just want to mention that I love, I liked um, the awareness that trying to find businesses brought upon me. I was like, Oh F I do not engage with enough black owned businesses, brown owned businesses. I do not engage with enough, enough LGBTQ owned businesses. And we have Hillcrest like right here. And, and it's like, I have all these resources that I didn't know I wasn't in, um, investigating. And, and this year with COVID and Black Lives Matter and everything, like everyone having to be at home, mm -hmm. 
um, was a reset button. And I'm, I'm going to say something a little controversial. I'm pretty grateful for um, the opportunity to reset my life and refocus on what matters the most. And it's people like you and learning about cool, different people and ways of living a more sustainable lifestyle, which includes a diverse network of individuals, because that is just adding value to me. Um, Why is that controversial? I don't think that's controversial. Well, because COVID is a, is a, it's a disaster. Right. But you're not saying I'm happy we have COVID. You're saying I have taken this opportunity to to hit the reset button, which I think is a fantastic example of finding the positive, Mm -hmm. right. And finding, I mean, if you, if you're a person of faith, for example, you probably believe everything happens for a reason. Right. And so that would be that you have to learn stuff. Right. Or if you're, person who believes in reincarnation we keep coming back until we learn until we learn and so i think it's fantastic that you would say that i love that thanks i think that there's um one characteristic that both jess and i could work on is we apologize for like existing we apologize for everything that's because you're women we do that we do it's it's i mean in my research women apologize all the time and i do it too and I don't consider myself to be any kind of shrinking violet, right? But I still apologize all the time. So that's one of the things you can help each other with. You can hold each other accountable, right? Um, yeah, I I feel like I overcorrected. I apologize for everything. And then I started apologizing for nothing. And now I'm like, you know what? I can say sorry sometimes. <laughs> I actually feel like I am. So I'm starting right. to pepper it back in. Um, well, well when, you, thinking- when, you, when you hurt someone's feelings, you say sorry. But if you bump into them in the store, you don't have to say sorry, right? Or if you didn't hear them. Sorry, what was that? Like, that's a place to take it out. So yeah. I apologize for interrupting you, Jessica. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Good example. Um, well, I was saying, as we're talking about all this, you know, we, I know like what you're focused on is bringing this into the workplace and our workplace is just law and nice. We can make changes fast. We can be woke. And something about these larger companies and I have a company in mind where my friend works and I kind of, I wanted to ask you, like, I guess for two two um, perspectives. One is like, what's being done? What are employers reaching out? Like, what are, what trends are you seeing for companies who want to focus on this? And then the other side is companies who don't even know, they don't get it, they don't care, um, at least from a leadership standpoint. And like, how can you get them to care? Mm. Or can you? Mm. So sorry, those are kind of two like broad questions, but the people who care, the people who don't care and what's What's going on with all that? <laughs> I feel like that's a great softball. Um, so the people who care, uh, they're talking to people like me, right? They are, you know, it's either because it, it could either be bottom up or top down. It could be that the CEO uh, has decided that she needs to diversify, that they're a little too white maybe, or maybe they're too um, too Japanese, what, whatever it is. They're all one thing, right? And so she reaches out. It could be that there's an employee who says, hey, how come there's no networking groups? How come we don't have any affinity? Some people call them affinity groups or employee resource groups where, you know, you'll be at a big company and there'll be the women's network group. Right. And women will join and do things that advance women, uh, women in the workplace or parenting group. Right. There's a variety of things. So it could be either way. It could be from the top or it could be from the bottom, as it were. And when when a company, I mean, I guess let me let me reset that. I don't think there's very many large companies that are not aware they need to pay attention to diversity and inclusion. 
right? If they're on the Fortune 100, for example, or even the 500, they're paying attention. If they're a mid to large size company, they know they have to have, for example, anti-discrimination policies. They know they have to have some of these things. The question is, do they live that value or do they do it? Not that I'm criticizing, because it's okay. If one of the things they do is to follow the law, love that. That's fantastic. That should be the baseline. <laughs> but if they want to go above and beyond that, it's generally because somebody's passionate about it. And if they are that type of company, um, they may have spent you know, millions of dollars on diversity and inclusion work and not seen a change in their culture. I think that is when you asked, I think you asked about trends. So I think that really the trend right now is to, to examine what they have already done and say, why didn't that work? And there's a lot of resources now that are saying education is not the answer. Diversity and inclusion education or sensitivity training, if you really want to be dismissive, is not the answer because all that does is remind people of how different they are and make them feel irritated that they're being taught this or told they have to pay attention to other people and it doesn't help them get their work done, right? So if an education is important, but it must be done in the right way, and that is in the sense of training people how to handle differences as opposed to just explaining, hey, diversity is important. Right now, I can do that. No, no, you know, no shade on that particular concept. But when you start to focus on what do we do to change our workplace so that our people feel like they belong, that I believe is the best trend. When you have companies that have said, okay, and, and there are many, there are many great companies that are doing this kind of work. I won't list them just because they're not, you know, sponsoring us or your podcast. But um, if they are doing all the right things, they are keeping all of their employees. They're not losing them to competition. They are seeing numbers that are something, if they have women on their board, for example, they're seeing 9% higher profit every year. I mean, the numbers do not lie. If you have a more diverse company, you are making more money and you are saving more money because you're not getting sued, right? So if they are... I've gotten lost in your question, I realize, Jessa, as I'm, as I'm talking, but I think the first question of what are the trends, the trend is to focus on belonging. Um, that's very self-serving for me to say that, but it's true. A lot of people are realizing that you, you can't just focus on how different people are or how we include more people. You have to focus on the entire picture. And if they don't, what was the other thing you said? If they don't, if they haven't done anything yet, what was your question? Yeah, for the people, they, they don't even, no, you're fine. I've, I barely remember what I asked at the time. Um, it's the people who don't, they don't know that they even have a problem yet. Or I should say that they have a problem. They don't know that they need to focus on belonging or even diversity or inclusion. And, you know, is it is it a lost cause, I guess? Or is there a way to, is that like where we as consumers need to focus on who we support? If like, I'm trying to think like, I'm thinking, let me give an example. I work in examples better, but there's this company my friend works for and my friend is Latin and there's one other person there who's not white and it's a publicly traded company. Mm. And there's two people and one person is from Mexico and one's from Dominican. And like the boss will come up and be like, how are my two favorite Mexicans? And that's just an example like that stuck out with me where I'm and that's not my understanding is that's par for the course and how this company treats their staff. So I'm like, if there's a, a very minority minority already, at least what you can visually see. And like you said, 
there might be people who get up and speak and you might stereotype them and they're not at all the stereotype you're thinking of. And I'm sure, you know, the company and they're, they're not huge, but they're publicly traded. And so like how, how would a company like that, how would employees who are at that level come and say, Hey, this, this isn't okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this isn't, this is unacceptable when they're not really in a leadership position to do so. Right. Okay. So if, if it's the two, if you're asking me what those two employees should do, they should call a lawyer. Right. I mean, that's awful. You you know, this is the, the carrot and the stick, right. (laughs) To what I do. And the, the idea that in this day and age, there would be a boss who would walk up to two people, first of all, miss, miss um, national origin, Nate them. They're not, you know, they're, it's not being correct. And then dismiss them to uh, a name like that is, it's just terribly offensive. And so that boss, this is not a bad person. That's a bad action, right? We always want to remember that needs to be educated that he needs that he or she, they, they need education. Now the employees are justifiably probably afraid to say anything because they don't want to lose their job. That's why we have employment laws. That is just like we have environmental laws to keep companies from unchecked progress, right? Unchecked growth, not to keep them from growing, but unchecked, right? Without any regard to what they put into the air. So in that situation, I mean, lawsuits are never the answer, but if those two employees, for example, can't get a voice, can't get a, can't get an audience in the HR team, then they should go outside. They should go outside the team. And I, as much as I think that makes me sound like maybe kind of a petty lawyer, the reality is threats of lawsuits are sometimes the only thing that makes companies pay attention. And it would be much better if they could say, hey, I saw this cool thing the other day, or I was wondering if maybe we could have a book club, right? White people love book clubs. So that's a great thing to say, you know, to a bunch of white people. I love book clubs, right? We'd love them. And so if they feel that comfort with each other, maybe they could go and talk to HR and ask for change. If they don't, and you care about them as an employer, you're going to lose them. They're either going to sue you or they're just going to leave. And if they leave, that's almost the worst case scenario because where are they going to go when they leave? Competitors. Right. And then they're going to tell the competitors how bad you are, right? <laughs> so it's like extra bad. You know, it's not like right. you raise someone up and now they're moving on to a cool new position. So um, in that particular situation, you know, if you're asking me how do companies wake up? So they wake up either because they get slapped in the face with press, Right. Or in the, you know, in the most recent um, public awareness of Black Lives Matter, they put up one of those black cards with the white letters on it on their Twitter feed or their Instagram, and then they don't do anything else. And then somebody, um, a racial justice advocate comes along and says, so what have you done? Now they get bad press, right? Companies react because they have bad press. They react internally because a shareholder has asked for change or said, hey, we're not diversifying. What's happening? This other company over here has got two women on their board and they're making much more money than we are. or They're not having any trouble raising funds or whatever it is. Um, You know, companies only do things for two reasons. They do things to make money or save money. That's it. And that's what they're supposed to do right? Corporations were founded to create profit for the shareholders. And there's people like us who help them do it in a socially um, responsible way, right? That's new. That's new. That's not what was happening with the railroads and the Vanderbilts in the 20s, right? I mean, we were, we were having unchecked progress, unchecked corporate development. And corporations aren't bad. They're neutral. That's the thing to remember, I think. When I talk to corporations, I try to remind them and the people that I'm talking to, nobody expects you to do things 
just because it's the right thing to do. It's not a civic organization or a church or a temple or, you know, the, the, the Girl Scouts or the Brownies, right? They do things because it's the right thing to do. Corporations do things to make money. So what we have to do, what I have to do is explain to them it's in their best interest. I'm going to help them save money by being aware, not referring to their Dominican and who, the other, did you say it was from Cuba? The other employee? Mexico. Oh, he's from Mexico. Okay. So not, you know, broadly referring to them as Mexicans. I'm going to save money because I'm not going to get sued. And I'm going to make more money because if those two employees feel seen and valued, they will be more innovative. They will be more productive. They will have 75% less sick days if they belong. I didn't just make that up. That's like a study. Um, they will have a 50% higher turnover rate if they feel excluded, right? It's very expensive to lose people. And so we're not just talking about fluffy stuff. We're talking about dollars and cents. What are the tenets of belonging? How do you know if the workplace creates a sense of belonging? How do you know? Um, well, if you're asking in the sort of sort of ethereal sense, um, I think people are laughing. People have personal things on their desks. They have, um, they have groups, they have some activities that they participate in, even if it's on Zoom, right? People who belong, they, they have occasionally personal conversations. Right? They, they feel comfortable speaking up in a meeting. They feel like um, it's not a cliquish environment. They feel they've evolved past sort of a high school uh, scenario. Yeah, I mean, you said, I like that. You said yeah. we want them to bring their, their whole selves to work, right? And it's not exactly true. We don't want them to come in their pajamas, but we do yeah. want them to bring their best selves to work. And people who can say, you know, I... I love unicorns and I have them right here on my desk are going to feel more comfortable sharing their lives with their coworkers. And that naturally includes their best ideas and their best problem solving. I think that's, I think that's, it is like a, a place of belonging. I love that you said you, you didn't, you write, you said a bunch of numbers that were very important for corporate leaders to understand um, the profit margins, the reduction in liabilities, um, the efficiency and all that. And then you said something when I said, how do you know if you're cultivating a workplace of belonging? And you basically said more smiling faces. <laughs> you know, people are laughing more. I love that you said that because we do live in a, in a physical material world where we tend to quantify everything quantify all of life. And I would recommend if, if you're in a workplace where there's a lot of frowns, a lot of upside downs and a lot of unhappiness and frustrations, and it's consistent, like there's a pattern of it, that would signal to me that that's not a place that cultivates belonging. That's right. Well, there's a reason that these mega companies spend a lot of money on things like having a slide in the lobby, right? I mean, up, up in Silicon Valley, they're, they're kind of leading this charge because they expect their people to work so hard and so long that they have dry cleaning on site and haircuts and doggy daycare and children daycare and, you know, uh, a ball pit where you can go and play. We have realized that Play helps people to be more creative and more innovative. And companies who are trying to create products and services need to be innovative. And if you want to, you know, you you paid for 100% of that employee, right? 
you're paying 100% salary. And if they're only bringing 25% of themselves to work because that's all they feel comfortable with, then you're wasting 75% of your investment, right? And if they take, like I said, 75% more sick days, you're actually losing them physically in, in the office. And so, yeah, if you have a workplace where people are at their desks, it's very, very boring, it's very dry, it's very impersonal, that's probably not so good. And it's probably coming from the top. And it may be totally unintentional, right? If somebody's very cut and dry, they're not about sharing themselves in the office, that's okay. But if they don't consciously tell other people that they can, then you're going to end up with an environment that doesn't have cool dog pictures in the background. <laughs> yeah. To me, to me, it's like uh, engagement. Like you want an engaged workplace, right? And yes. we, we've had several podcasts where we've talked about self-awareness and success in business. And our, part, our advisors at XQ Innovation just said, you know, the Gallup poll stating that 64% of Americans are disengaged in the workplace and and then on top of that, 13% of that 64% are actually miserable. Mm. And, and what do miserable people do? They love company and misery grows. And it's kind of like a virus, you know, um, for lack of a better word. And well, get to the idea of bullying, right, in the workplace, right? And this sort of lack of civil behavior, it's incredibly contagious. It's incredibly contagious. You know, somebody, an employee only has to see one non-civil interaction to start to feel stressed in the workplace. Like it's, it, I don't have all those numbers cause I'm not a, a bullying expert, but there are people who do this and, and they're amazing. And it's, it, you just set the wrong tone, right? Everybody wants to feel safe. Like that's the most basic thing, safe. Then there's cooler stuff right on top of that, but that's got to be there. I'm sorry, Laurel, I, 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 did, I cut you off. I got excited, sorry. Don't apologize. No, this is all great. <laughs> and. Let's say we're right at our time and I think we could easily, easily, easily talk to you for another two to three hours minimum. So uh, I think it's just, this is a hard one to wrap up, um, at least as far as just like, you know, wanting the conversation to keep going for a long time. But in the interest of time, we try to keep these around an hour. And so I think, you know, like you said, like the main thing is like for people to feel safe. And so on that note, uh, will you be able to provide three key takeaways Right. Okay. So the number one thing is that if you are a white person, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's really important. You need to start being aware and that involves being uncomfortable. We don't like it. We don't like to feel like we might be doing something wrong or that we benefited from something that we shouldn't have benefited from. So that's number one. Now that I see that there on the screen, I think, oh gosh, what am I going to say for number two? <laughs> I think number two is educate yourself. No matter who you are, you can educate yourself about the difference that other people experience. Now I say that if you are a black trans woman who uses the benefit of a wheelchair, you probably don't need a lot of education about the, the crap that other people are dealing with, right? Because you're already dealing with so many types of diverseness and intersectionality, but educate yourself, that's very important. And then the third one I think is everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to feel safe. And that includes straight white men. And if you want to talk more about that, you know, come and see me for consultation because you do not get anywhere if you approach this issue and explain that they are the problem or that they are not part of this discussion or that, you know, they don't understand. I'm here to tell you that many of them do and they need to be invited to the discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Thank wonderful. You. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing 
and your time and being so open. Uh, this was this is really great. Well, thank you both for having me. I, I'm so excited by what you're doing. I know we didn't get a chance to talk about sort of social good in, in corporations, but I think it's really lovely that you have that focus. And I just applaud that. For thank you. A lot. I'd be. I would stand up, except you'd see my jeans. So <laughs> we we're thrilled to have you, and um, you know, thank you again for participating in the Tory project and imparting your wisdom upon the startups there. And and I wish that for you in your future, if that's what you want to educate more startups about their options, so they can start off on the right foot. Um, highly recommend that, and we're here for you as a resource. And you know, you had mentioned offline that there's. You're coming out with a product about white privilege. Please send that to us. We are white and privileged. We would love to. Oh my! <laughs> love to be involved in that. Um, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you both. All right, send it, Jessa. Thanks for listening, and visit astellar.co. That's a s t e l l a r dot c o for reference materials from the podcast and to connect with Jessa and Laurel. Foxhole Studios specializes in audio production and can work remotely to meet your audiovisual needs whether you live in San Diego or not. Getting a podcast started? Contact the team at info at foxholestudios.com for any and all inquiries.